What I'll be doing is reading the first verses of chapter 28, uh, the first five verses, and then I'll turn over to chapter 29 and read the first nine verses. So we'll get a glimpse of the, the garments of the priests and then the ordination ceremony of the priests. Exodus chapters 28 and 29. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother. For glory and for beauty you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And then the beginning of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd, and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his two sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was reading an article about the staging that takes place when two heads of state or high up uh, elected officials meet. And they stage exactly where they'll stand uh, for all the photos. They stage who will be on which side when they, when they uh, get the picture shaking hands. And I never thought about this, but the, the one on the left, he gets to be open and look at the camera where the one on the right is reaching across himself and is closed and is crimped. And then I saw a picture of President Xi of China and President Biden shaking hands, and I noticed President Biden was open and President Xi was having to reach across. And I'm wondering that if for the Chinese media consum consumption that it was the opposite, and President Biden had to reach across and President Xi could be open. I don't know because I don't watch uh, Chinese media. But uh, it was, it's very well scripted. These, these things that look very casual and very spontaneous, they're not. There's protocol. And if you or I, who are not high officials, were to have an audience with one, we would be briefed beforehand. We would be told what to wear. We would be told what to say, what not to say. We would be told how to enter, where to stand, where to sit, what to do at every moment. It would be very highly scripted. And what's the point of that? The point of that is this is a very important person. And so there is protocol involved in approaching this person. Now, we in the West have gotten to be very casual, and we might think we can just walk in and give a fist bump, but that's not how it works. Uh, there, there's protocol with the importance and the power and the authority of the person. And so when we get to 
these chapters and we're trying to read through the Bible and we get to this section of Exodus, we might get a little bit distracted and a little bit bored even because we're wondering what is the point of all these details about the, the clothing and about the, the ceremony involved in, in the priest's activities. And it's just what I said, that's the point. They're, they're having the, the privilege and the honor and the danger of going into the presence of the Lord. And so, yes, this needs to be scripted. They can't just barge in any old way they would like to. They need to be dressed appropriately, and they need to be briefed appropriately so that they enter for blessing and not for cursing. And so the first, in chapter 28, we have how they should be dressed, how they should be dressed. And uh, Aaron and his sons uh, were to be assigned the priesthood, the high priesthood, and here we have, in chapter 28, the description of eight garments, eight garments that they were to be given. The high priest had one of those garments, and the other had uh, the others had another sort of garment, but there were eight in all. There was, first of all, the ephod. Now, what is an ephod? We're not really sure what an ephod is, but it looks like it was some sort of a vest, some sort of a vest, and this vest had two stones, and on those two stones were written the names of the sons of Israel or the tribes of Israel. So six on one of the stones, six on the other. And if it was a vest, so they had the two stones, uh, and they carried on their, on their chest the, the names of the sons of Israel. Similarly, there was a breast piece, and that had 12 stones. And on those 12 stones, they also had each of the names of the tribes, the sons of Israel. And it also had something that's curious for us, uh, two, looks like stones called the, the Urim and the Thummim. And the use of these is not particularly clear. It looks like they carried these two stones, but these two stones begin with the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So uh, there's some suggestion about these are the, the beginning and the end, um, but it's not really clear how these were used before the Lord. Then there was a robe. The robe had a reinforced collar, and it had a hem with pomegranates, fruit, alternating with bells. Uh, and then there was the turban. Uh, the high priest got to wear the turban with what's called sometimes a crown, and it had a special plate on the crown. And the plate was made of gold, and it said, Holy to the Lord, separated to the Lord. Now, the other priests got caps of some sort, but the high priest had the turban with the gold plate. And then there was what looks like a checkered coat, if the translation is correct, a checkered coat. And the turban, these were both of fine linen. And there were also coats and sashes and the caps for Aaron's sons. And then finally, last but not least, there was underwear. There was a special undergarment made of linen as well for the priests. That was their clothing. And that's all described in chapter 28. Now, these these garments, we don't understand the function of all of them, but some of the functions are spelled out here. The first is, they were aesthetically pleasing. Twice it talks about that they were beautiful. In verse 2, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, we read the same thing in chapter 28, verse 40. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. And so they were going into 
a glorious place where the glory of the Lord they would encounter, and so they should, should look glorious as well. So this was aesthetically pleasing and proper for entering into such a glorious and heavy, that's, that's kind of the, the root word of the idea of glory, it's such a heavy place, such a, a beautiful and glorious place. That's the first thing. They also emphasized the role of the priests in representing the people of God before him and even bearing the people on themselves, bearing the people's judgment, bearing the people's sin before the Lord. And so there is this representative nature. In fact, that's what a priest is. A priest is one who represents people before God. They may have other functions, but that's the basic idea of a priest. If you look at verse 12, for example, it says, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And then uh, verse 13 uh, as well, oh, I'm sorry, no, jump down to verse 29 about the, the breast piece. It says, and so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece, best breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And so here he is bearing the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord. And then uh, verse 38 as well, it, it mentions that. It says that it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead. That is the, the, uh, the turban with the, the gold plate that says holy to the Lord. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the priests are carrying Israel, as it were, on their backs into the presence of the Lord. There is also another function that's mentioned here, and that is their protection. That's their protection. Because if they went in in a way that God did not authorize, that could be very dangerous. If you look at verse 35, it says, And it shall be on Aaron, uh, this is the, the golden bells, and the pomegranates around the hem of the robe, it says, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, and cryptically it says, so that he does not die, so that he does not die. And then in addition, if you look at chapter 28, verse 43, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. And so there's a dangerous a danger to this job that they're doing. Uh, they are going into the holy place before a holy God, and they're bearing guilt. They're bearing sin before the Lord. And so uh, these are for their protection as well. Now, those are the garments. That's chapter 28. And then we have the, the elaborate ceremonies in chapter 29, the rituals that God commanded Moses to perform for his brother Aaron and for Aaron's sons. And there are a number of verbs here that are helpful for us to, to look at to understand what this was all about. The first verb shows up in verse 1 of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to consecrate them. Uh, another way of uh, translating that is to sanctify, or if I could make up a word, to holify them, to make them holy 
or to set them apart. That's the idea of consecrate them, where they're set apart by God and for God, for this particular work. And then uh, this, this same action of consecration is applied to a number of different elements. It's applied to the offerings in verse 27. It's applied to the altar in verses 36 and 37. It's applied to the tent in general in verse 44, and to all the furniture that's used and the utensils that are used. All of these are consecrated. They're holified. They're sanctified. They are set apart for a specific use, the priests and all of the elements in the tent. The other verb, uh, the, the other verb is translated here, ordain, ordain. And uh, if you look, for example, at verse 9 of chapter 29, you shall gird Aaron, his sons, with sashes, bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Verse 29 uses the word again. Verse 35 uses the word again. This is applied only to the priests. Elements, inanimate objects are consecrated, sanctified, set apart, but only persons are ordained. And this, this is an interesting verb. Uh, it's, it's literally to fill the hands, to fill the hands. And it says, you shall fill the hands of the priests. Now, that's a metaphor that I'm not sure we, we get completely, but at least it means it's giving them a, a heavy responsibility. To this day, we say what? Oh, she really has her hands full. What's that mean? She is loaded down with responsibilities. And it looks like that's something similar. You will fill their hands with the priesthood. And they will hold it. The, the last verb, uh, the third verb, is the verb to anoint. That shows up a number of times. And a number of things were anointed. Priests were anointed. Garments were anointed. The altar was anointed. The tent was anointed with oil and also with blood. And then in uh, verse 7, for example, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Anoint him. Um, by anointing them, they were making them anointed ones. And we know the word anointed one, it's the word Messiah. Or in Greek, it's Christ. Or, well, as we say it in English, it's Christ. So basically, they were making these men, Messiahs, anointed ones. There were others who anointed ones in the Old Testament. The kings were sometimes anointed with oil. On one occasion, there's a pre, uh, prophet that's anointed with oil. But, but more than all the other offices, the priests were the anointed ones. They were the messiahs. They were the Christs of the Old Testament. They were the ones that, that had received that anointing, that christening. Now, um, the, uh, the verbs are put together in, in this ritual. And this is a very complicated ritual. It takes a number of steps, but I'll just try to give you the outline of it. Verse 4, first of all, they, they get washed. So they get a bath first. They get cleaned up first. They are washed with water in verse 4. And then they're partially clothed in verses 5 and 6. Some of the pieces that we've met in verse 20, or chapter 28 are put on them. And then they are, they are anointed. They are made Messiahs, Christ's anointed ones in verse 7. And then the rest of the clothing is put on them in verses 8 and 9. And then there are three separate offerings, three separate offerings that are offered. One is called the sin offering, verses 10 to 14. Another is called the burnt offering, verses 15 to 18. And the other one is called the wave offering. 
that is in verses 22 to 25. Now, these uh, we could study in some other time in detail the, the different offerings of the Old Testament, but there's something here that they have in common. They have some things in diff- different as well. Like in the burnt offering, it's con- completely consumed. The wave offering, part of it is left for the priests to eat and so on. So there are different purposes here, but they have in common an interesting action. In each case, before this offering, the priests lay their hands on the animal, on the sacrificial animal. If you look at verse 10, then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse 15, then you shall take one of the rams. This is the second offering, the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then verse 19, the wave offering. And you shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tips of the right ears of his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Three times they lay their hands on and then the next thing that happens to those animals is those animals are killed. Now, it doesn't explain what's going on here. It doesn't explain the meaning of this, but it it, it signifies that for some reason, after they've laid their hands on these animals, these animals must be killed. Now, fortunately, we have other places in, in the books of Moses where these actions are explained in somewhat more detail. If you go to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, it's more explicit about what happens when there's the laying on of hands. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Now, it's not exactly the same kind of offering. This is one that's sent out into the wilderness, but, but the idea, it gives us the idea that we probably already had that once something is given to these animals, they must die, or in the case of the other one, be sent out in the wilderness to, uh, to die. Now, the point here is that the people saw graphically illustrated, graphically illustrated a truth that is from the beginning of Scripture till the end, and that is the wage of sin is death. That shows up very early. God says to the first, the first humans, don't eat of this tree, because in the day you eat of this tree, dying you will die. And that message is, is communicated all through the Old Testament and the New. And they, they saw it graphically. They saw it graphically that as, as their sins symbolically were being transferred to this animal, the next thing that happened to the animal is that animal died. And we saw last week that this is, this is the idea of atonement or covering over, that their sins were covered over, they were atoned for, 
Uh, they were, the technical word is propitiated. Uh, God's justice was satisfied. God's favor was gained by a substitute who died in their place. Now, the purpose of all this, and how here we get to something like a summary, the purpose of the tent, the purpose of the priesthood was twofold. And that's in verses 44 and 45. We have a summary statement. And these, these are, are verbs that we've heard before. Uh, verse 44, it says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That really gets through all of the, the complications and the protocol and the rituals and says this is why God is doing this. So that he can dwell with his people and so that they can know him and know that he is their savior who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that he can be not only their God at a distance, but that he can dwell in their midst. And as we saw, he dwelt in their midst as they dwelt. How were they living? They were living in tents. And if God was going to live among them, he was going to live in a tent as well, as close as he could be to them. Now, um, the priesthood was a constant reminder that the way to approach God by sinful humans is through acceptable sacrifices offered by appointed and anointed priests. And this lesson meant that access to God was possible. It was possible, but only in the way that he prescribed. Now, this priesthood of Aaron, it says here, the, the translation says in chapter 29, verse 9, it says, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever, forever. Thus you, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And here we might scratch our heads and say, but where are they now? If this was to be forever, what happened to this priesthood? Well, first of all, we should notice that, that this word means a long time, but it doesn't necessarily mean what we would say forever. Um, just as an example of that, if you go back to chapter 21, where are those laws about slaves and, and maidens and so on, um, it says there that if there is a, a slave, it's really more like an indentured servant. He served his six years, and he, he's, he can go free. But he says, I love my master, and I don't want to go free. I want to serve him, and I want to stay in his household. And then there's this ritual about taking him to the door and, and piercing his ear, and then it says, after that's done, he shall be his slave. Same word. How long? Forever. Um, is he going to be a slave forever? What's going to cut that forever short? His death, right? And so what does it mean? He will be his slave for as long as he can. He will be his slave for as long as his life lasts. But there is an end point to that that indentured servitude, that slavery. And so if we go back to Leviticus chapter 29 and we read it there, we could read this, this, is, this priesthood is for Aaron and his sons perpetually, but maybe, maybe they will come to a natural 
end. And um, we find, as we, we think about the, the priesthood that Aaron received and his sons after him, that there were at least three built-in deficiencies, at least three built-in deficiencies that indicated that this priesthood had an expiration date, that, that it wouldn't be actually forever and ever and ever, but it would come to an end, its, its natural end. These, these, these insufficiencies would, would become too great. And the three insufficiencies, and these are all not surprisingly pointed out in the letter to the Hebrews, um, the priests did the same thing that that slave did. They had this tendency to die off. Now, think about this. You're going to the, the temple, and you have your sacrifice ready, and you want to approach the Lord in worship, and then you get the terrible news that the priest died. And so you can't approach God because the priest is gone. You can't get to God without this priest. He, he failed you by dying. And you can't approach God until there's another priest in his place. And that's very inconvenient. And I'm not saying that facetiously. That, that's a built-in problem here to the priesthood. And that's why it had to be Aaron and then his sons and their sons and their sons and their sons. They had to keep filling the ranks again because these priests would die off. And that's a problem. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. There's another problem, and that is this. They themselves were imperfect. They were imperfect. You know what they had to do before they offered sacrifices for the sins of the people? They, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were imperfect. So there were imperfect people representing imperfect people before God. And the third problem with the priesthood is they offered inadequate sacrifices that could never take away sin. That's what Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 11. They were inadequate. Why were they inadequate? Who sinned? Did the bulls sin? Did the rams sin? No, they didn't sin. It was humans who sinned. So, so how, could, how could bulls and rams and goats take away human sin? How could they be an acceptable sacrifice, an adequate sacrifice for human sins? And the answer at the end of the day is they can't. And so these built-in inadequacies all through the, the more than a millennium of, of the, the work of the, the, the priests of Aaron, they were, they were always leaving this, this doubt. Is this really working? Or is there something better to come? And as you know, as we've seen basically every week, yes, there is something better to come, and that is Jesus. This is the whole point of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews points out that where they lacked where they had their deficiencies Jesus had none their first deficiency was that they died and they couldn't continue Hebrews chapter 7 we read it today in our in our reading of the New Testament it says but he uh, chapter 7 verse 24 but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them those who go, go to God through Jesus will never find a sign posted and saying I'm sorry there is no active high priest today because he has died and we don't have one until we get another we'll never find that sign he always lives to make intercession for those who approach God through him. Secondly, same chapter, verse 28, 
Same chapter, Hebrews 7. Jesus is perfect. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the oath, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Whom would you like to represent you before God? Somebody like you? As sinful as you are? Or somebody who's perfect? You see, they were sinful. They needed sacrifices for their own sins. He didn't need sacrifices for his own sins. And also, they offered inadequate sacrifices, but Jesus offered the only adequate sacrifice. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But then in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, we read, For the blood, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, consecrate for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In every deficiency of the the high priests and the priests. Jesus answers the need. He's the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice, the one who lives forever. You see, the need for a high priest and the need for a sacrifice didn't go away. That's perpetual. That's perpetual. That is forever and ever. But what, what we find in Jesus is that we have that. We have that sacrifice. We have that high priest. And since Jesus is the priest, since Jesus is the sacrifice, we need to go to God through him and through him alone. We dare not go on our own. We dare not represent ourselves before God. We dare not barge into his presence in any old way we might like. We need to go to God through faith in Jesus. Now, this means, this means that there is no longer a class of priests among the people of God. There is no longer a class of priests in the church of Jesus Christ. Why is there no longer? Because there is no longer a need for a class of priests in among the people of God. But what we have is this kind of interesting answer. If you ask the question, are there any priests in the church of Jesus Christ? It's a, it's a twofold answer. The first one is, no, Jesus is the great high priest, the only perfect sacrifice for our sins. But then you get language in the New Testament that says, but yes, everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ has priestly functions. And sprinkled through the New Testament, there are these priestly functions. Now, let's be clear here. These priestly functions are not offering sacrifices to atone for our sins, to make up for our sins. They are not that. They depend on Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, and they extend that sacrifice to the ends of the earth. Let's look at a few of these. In Hebrews chapter 13, we find this. Through him... Why through him? Because he's the, he's the perfect sacrifice. Verse 15, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
This is what we do when we gather together. This is what we do when we sing and make melody in our hearts throughout the day. We are offering a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And then, practically, in verse 16, here's the second one. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have with others. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The fruit of lips and the fruit of generosity. These are our sacrifices we offer to God, not for our sins, but in light of the fact that Christ has already given himself for us. And then in Philippians, we have another sacrifice that, that Paul used this kind of language. He says to the Philippians, he was their missionary. They sent him money. And he says this, verse 18 of chapter 4 of Philippians, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So there's, there's, there's praise to God. There's helping one another. There is giving money to missionaries. And then the next step in that is what do the missionaries do? The missionaries go out and they preach the gospel to the nations. And look at how Paul in Romans chapter 15 verse 16 describes his his missionary activity. He says, because of the grace that God has given me, I am a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, the nations, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you see how this works? So we praise God, we help one another, we give to missionaries, the missionaries preach the gospel to the nations, and the missionaries go to God with the nations and say, God, here is our sacrifice. Here is the offering of the church of Jesus Christ. Here are the nations redeemed in Jesus Christ. You see, these sacrifices that we offer are to get the news about the sacrifice of Christ to the ends of the earth so that the nations might be presented before God. But there's one other one. And this one, this other sacrifice is more basic than them all, and all of the other ones depend upon it. And it's this, Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present yourselves. That's where it starts. In light of all that God has done in Jesus Christ, present yourselves as sacrifices. I remember hearing in my early days of being a Christian, and then I just looked up this phrase. I haven't heard it in, in, in years and years, but it's all over the internet. Apparently, this is one of those quotable quotes. And it goes like this. It's attributed to different people. It's attributed to uh, J. Vernon McGee. It's attributed to D.L. Moody. I'm sure if you could keep looking, you could find that Tim Keller said it, or C.S. Lewis said it, or Martin Luther said it. It's one of those things that just goes circulating, and it's this. And that is the problem with, with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. Now, that's kind of corny. I, I get it. But it's also true. That's the problem. Easy to say, offer your bodies. Offer yourselves. Offer all that you are to God. That's, that's your worship. But it's, it's so easy to beg off when that, that offering is costly when that offering is difficult or even merely inconvenient. Jesus offered himself, his body, as a living sacrifice. And if anybody could get off the altar, it would have been Jesus. And in fact, they taunted him, didn't they? You say you're the son of God. Well, come down from the cross. 
and show it. But he stayed put. He stayed on that altar. He stayed on that cross so that our sins could be atoned for and so that we could become living sacrifices, giving ourselves for him and for the salvation of the nations. We sing a hymn here. Maybe we should have sung it today, but we sang it recently. We sing a hymn here, and every time I sing this hymn, there are phrases in this hymn that kind of stick in my throat because I'm wondering if I'm really, really telling the truth. It's a prayer, and it sticks in my throat because I really wonder, Larry, do you mean that? But in our best moments, this, this prayer, this hymn, expresses the sincere desire of every true believer Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold not a mite, not a cent, would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be forever. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Let's pray. Our God, once again, we come saying the same thing we say every week. Thank you for Jesus. In one way or the other, we say that every week because we come to Jesus, we see him in your word, and we we find him once again, in this case, as our great high priest and as the sacrifice the one who didn't crawl off the altar when it would have been much more convenient and much less painful to do so. We thank you that Jesus remained on that cross in spite of the taunts so that our sins could be atoned for once and for all. And now, O God, I pray that all of us would come to you only through Jesus, not trying to be our own priests, not offering our sacrifices for our sins, but rather trusting all in Jesus alone. And then, having come to you through him, that we would be able to offer all that we are and all that we have as sacrifices to you for your glory and for the salvation of the nations. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.